Welcome to Two Bits, a podcast about coins and currency produced by the American Numismatic Association and hosted by Doug Mudd and Mitch Sanders. Yeah, hi, Mitch. This, this is going to be an exciting topic today. We've got a lot of things to cover, which I think will make for a very interesting discussion. So on to you, Mitch. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. And I, I agree about the interesting nature of this week's topic because we're going to talk about silver dollars focusing on Morgan and Peace dollars, which are course, a very popular collectible in the hobby. And I really like the way we're going to talk about silver dollars, which is thinking about them from a very broad perspective. So there's a lot of discussion in the hobby about grading, of course, and about die varieties. Those are both very interesting and important subjects, but we're really not going to get into those subjects when we talk about silver dollars today. We're going to talk more about the history of the series, their political background, their economic background, and, and the role that they played while they were being issued. And, it, and it's a really interesting story. Yeah, it is a really interesting story because here's this, here's this area that is probably one of the most common types of coins that you see at the coin shows. You're going to see lots of Morgan dollars on sale in various forms, mostly slab, but also a lot of raw coins. and there's a lot of discussion about Morgan dollars. There's a ton of books out there. And when I initially got into collecting as an adult, as, as opposed to as a kid, because I, I really didn't know anything about Morgan dollars as a kid. I knew about Lincoln cents and, and then some foreign coins because of where I was living. But uh, I, I was really surprised at just how much information there was about these coins and I didn't know much about them because, you know, as an adult, I hadn't seen dollars circulating. It wasn't until 79 that a dollar came back into use. I'd been aware of Eisenhower's, but they weren't important. It wasn't part of something you saw every day. So I was, I was wondering about these coins that you saw all the time. And this Morgan dollar was an interesting coin and the peace dollar was also another interesting coin, but uh, I couldn't, understand why they were so important in collecting at first. I know what you mean, because Morgan dollars, you don't have to look far at a coin show or in a coin shop to find Morgan dollars. They, they really are everywhere. And they're, they're nice big coins, and so many of them are uncirculated, so they're, they're visually appealing. Of course, there are degrees of visual appeal, but you know, any Morgan dollar, you can tell that it's something um, that's quite old. Um, and uh, large and impressive, and peace dollars too. They're newer, but the same silver dollar format for both coins. So should we delve into our silver dollar timeline? Absolutely. Okay, so in, in many ways, the timeline goes back to the origins of American coinage and even to antiquity with the, the, uh, the use of gold and silver and sometimes called the battle of the standards. But for... Uh, most of American history to that time, from the origin of the coinage system through 1873, the United States had a bimetallic system where both gold and silver could be freely coined at the United States mints. Now, in practice, you would usually not have both metals coined simultaneously. It would be more like an ebb and flow of one or the other. But officially and in practice, we had a bimetallic system. Then, Coinage Act of 1873, later called the Crime of 1873. But in 1873, it was just simply called the Coinage Act of 1873, and it did a bunch of things, uh, most of which were not that big a deal, um, or at least not very momentous from the perspective of their impact on coinage. 
there were some bureaucratic changes like Mint headquarters was created in Washington, D.C. Some coins that were really not being very much used, like the two-cent piece, three-cent silver piece, and the half-dime, they were eliminated. Uh, but the big thing about the Coinage Act of 1873 was that in the listing of coins that would be issued by the United States, the silver dollar was absent. So this put an end to the free coinage of silver and put an end to silver dollar coinage as a whole. In a few years, people would come to think of this as, as a crime for reasons that we'll get into. But at first, it was, it was relatively mundane, the Coinage Act of 1873. But even though silver dollar coinage wouldn't start for a few more years, this is really the genesis of, of the movement that became of the agitation for silver dollars. So basically, with free silver, what they're talking about then is uh, if I brought silver or gold to the mint in the pre-1873 period, uh, the mint wouldn't charge a, a price for melting down my silver or gold uh, as a surcharge. They would actually do it for free. And so I brought a silver plate in. It was worth $2.50. I would get $2.50 worth of coins without any uh, cost to me. They would just convert my, my silver plate into silver. So coinage. It, it, then it was free in both senses of the word, free in which you were free to do it. You could, you could have your silver coin and free in the sense of it didn't cost you anything to do it. Uh, right. And so when, when, when free coinage ended, you couldn't, even if you were willing to pay for it, you couldn't have it done. So the two, the two pieces, the two senses of the word free went together. Um, right. And, and, and that had something to do with the politics at the time as well, because the silver miners didn't want people coming in and selling their silver to the mint for nothing. They wanted the mint to buy their silver. And uh, it reflects the fact that by 1873, I mean, really after 18, after the 1870s, uh, there was so much silver coming out of this U.S. mines that there was no need for the mint to offer this service for free anymore because they weren't looking for silver. It was, if anything, the opposite. There was so much silver that it needed a market. So much silver coming out of the mines in the West that it needed a market. And so that's a that's a good transition, I think, to the, the next item in our silver dollar timeline, which is that in 1878, the Bland-Allison Act became law. And before that, so going back to the Coinage Act of 1873, the crime of 1873, as it was later called, basically right after the Coinage Act of 1873 was, was passed, silver prices really plummeted. And the evidence that I've seen in the historical record indicates that some of the folks who were planning the Coinage Act knew that this was going to happen or had reason to believe this was going to happen, and they wanted to prevent silver from, from overwhelming the coinage of the United States. Uh, but what happened was when the price of silver declined so dramatically, that meant that for people who had silver or for people who wanted to expand the money supply, which would have been basically anyone who, who owed a debt uh, would have been in favor of expansion of the, of the money supply. If silver had been used as money, then that would have taken care of the price of silver and also expanded the money supply. But now people think about doing this, but, oh, wait a minute, now there's no longer any free coinage of silver. The silver dollar has been eliminated, and free coinage of silver is not an option at the United States Mint. So that's how this came to be dubbed 
the crime of 1873 because once people realized that if not for that act, the money supply could have expanded, people started to become upset about it, then beginning some agitation, which eventually led to silver dollar coinage. Yeah, to me, it, it's very interesting because it really speaks to the politics of the time and the relative lack of knowledge of of the legislature of the time. Uh, you know, Congress congressmen didn't know the ins and outs of monetary uh, supply and demand. They they weren't economists. Yet the silver miners, the silver interests as they're known, were very aware that all of a sudden they had a huge amount of silver with the discoveries of the Comstock Lode and uh, other major discoveries in Nevada and other parts of the country in the West. There was a huge flood of silver, an unprecedented uh, flood of silver on the market. More silver was being produced than ever before. This was equivalent to the find of the, the fabulous mountain of silver in Bolivia, the, the mountain mm-hmm. of Potosi, which was a, literally a mountain full of silver. It took them something like 150 years to actually mine out most of the silver. Well, the Comstock Globe was bigger than that. So what this meant was that the value of silver relative to gold plummeted from its historical uh, norm of something in the order of 15 to 1, at least for several hundred years, to as low as 30 to 1 and decreasing. Well, this created a major problem. The silver interests, you know, owners of uh, silver mines and all that were looking at this going, we've got more silver than ever, I should be rich. But the value of the silver is going down so much, it may not be worth it for me to keep mining it. So they started to agitate for the government to help them by purchasing silver to help uh, float the price. That's where things ended up. Along the way, there was, all, there was some agitation because you, you had different interests. You had the, the silver mining interests in the West. And one thing that is relevant politically is that even though the Western states may have had a relatively small population, every state had two senators. So you'd often see a lot of United States senators being really influential because uh, of the way states are represented. So even small populations or states with small populations could have an outsized influence. And then you combine that with, there was the Greenback Party at the time, which was in favor of a, a, a larger money supply in order to make debts easier to repay. It would have been somewhat inflationary. There was this interest in expanding the money supply also. And these things came together in silver So initially, there was a movement to revive the free coinage of silver, as it had been before 1873. That ended up not happening. Instead, something of a compromise, a bit of an expansion of the money supply. And then, like you said, the silver mining interests got what they wanted, which was the government was required to purchase silver. So uh, if you're ready, I'll outline what the Bland-Allison Act of 1878 required the government to do. Yeah, that, this should be this should be interesting because talk about a combination of political uh, self-serving and uh, lack of knowledge among the legislatures. This was it. Yes, and also in, in in an environment we should say where precious metal coinage was only just getting back up and running. So in 1873, the country was still dealing with the aftermath of the Civil War with the issue of paper money, and so precious metal coins were pretty scarce. Even in 1873, it was only a few years later that silver started to return. So 
policymakers were making these decisions in a time of considerable fluctuation as the nation was still dealing with these, these coinage issues. But what ended up happening, what ended up being passed was the Bland-Allison Act of 1878. This act required the government to purchase silver bullion every month between $2 million and $4 million worth of silver uh, every month to then be coined into silver dollars. And it would have been coined into more than that of silver dollars because by that time, as we've said, the value of silver in a silver dollar was less than a dollar. So it was not free coinage, but it was a substantial amount of silver that was being purchased. And one thing that's always interesting to me from a, a political perspective, the Bland-Allison Act was passed by Congress. It was vetoed by President Rutherford Hayes. It was then passed over his veto, which is a pretty big deal for Congress to pass legislation over the veto of a president, especially something that's of substantial importance as this was. And then one thing, I've just always found this ironic, the, the first silver dollar struck under the Bland-Allison Act was presented to President Hayes. So it's like, you vetoed this, we overrode your veto, and look, here's what came of it. And uh, I've never actually been to it, but I used to drive pretty close to the Rutherford Hayes Museum in Ohio. I always wanted to go see the first Morgan dollar that was, I can only think they were kind of thumbing their nose at President Hayes because he was so opposed to it, and they gave him the first one. But it was with this act in 1878, the Bland-Allison Act, that silver dollar coinage commenced, and in a, a pretty substantial quantity, two to, fill, two to four million dollars worth of silver per month, you know, that's a lot of silver dollars, and that's a big part of why there are so many silver dollars now. Yeah, it was a substantial uh, concession to the silver interest because it meant that within the U.S., they buoyed the price of silver up quite a bit, which had an interesting side effect because this is at the same time that the rest of the world was largely moving away from uh, silver as the basis for their coinage. They were moving to a gold standard. For example, Germany moved to a gold standard at this time in this time frame in the 1870s, and they sold off their reserves of silver. I mean, 8,000 tons of silver in one year, which just, dropped the price through the floor at yeah. that point. So it turned out that one of the things that made this a crime was that the mint was being forced to buy domestic silver at an inflated price while they could purchase foreign silver at a much reduced price, but they weren't allowed to do that. They, they were forced to buy the, the American silver. Yeah. And it was to make coins that nobody really wanted or needed or, or used. So it, was, it wasn't, even as a byproduct of this uh, political decision, there really was hardly any benefit to the coinage of these, of these silver dollars. So as part of this act, uh, in order to increase the money supply, they created silver certificates for the first time. And what their original intent was, these notes were specifically released by the treasury to purchase silver from the miners. And then the silver would come to the mint, be turned into Morgan dollars. The Morgan dollars would then be the backing for these silver notes. And they were specifically backed by silver dollars. So they weren't silver bullion. They weren't backed by gold or anything else. It was silver dollars made from the silver that they were used to purchase. This 
created a really wonderful series of notes, but later would create other problems. And, and we'll get into that later. Yeah, some foreshadowing here in the Silver Dollar timeline. And so after the Bland-Allison Act in 1878, you, you can look at the mintage figures, you can see the mint coining this bullion, you know, like 20, 30 million silver dollars per year across various mints. Uh, silver dollars were made in Philadelphia, at San Francisco and New Orleans. Uh, some were made in Carson City, but not in a substantial of a quantity. And then in the second incarnation, they were made in Denver. That's a, a later part of the story. So there were silver certificates uh, all along. And then in 1886, there was an act that allowed the production of silver certificates in relatively small denominations, like $1, $2, $5. The original ones were larger denominations. So this created, as you said, a, a new class of banknote that then took its place along the other types of banknotes in the American system. And I, it, it's cool to think there were so many different types of money. There were gold certificates, silver certificates, national banknotes, United States notes dating back to the Civil, civil War. So there were all these different types of notes, but the silver certificates, uh, and especially when they were issued in low denominations that, that ordinary people might use, they finally allowed these silver dollars to have a monetary role. They weren't circulating, but they were backing up as precious metal, this paper money that was circulating much more conveniently. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting is, you know, going to the, the modern age, just as a side comment, is there's been a move in the last 15 to 20 years to reintroduce the larger denomination coins. So in Canada, Britain, Australia, and many other countries, we've seen a move away from the dollar note or the pound note to a dollar coin, and in Canada's case, a $2 coin, and in England, a pound coin, a two-pound coin, all of which initially had resistance because those notes were originally issued to simplify the usage of that denomination because the coins were too large and too heavy back in the days when they were bullion-based. And it turns out that today the only successful conversion to the dollar coin or the pound coin is in systems where they eliminate the equivalent dollar note. That's an important lesson. I, I wrote an article recently about the Susan B. Anthony dollar and that there's there's one really very clear takeaway from the story of the Susan B. Anthony dollar and then followed up with these other coinage systems in other countries, as you mentioned, that all else equal, there seems to be a public preference for uh, a bill as opposed to a coin. But when the bill is removed, the coin takes its place. And, and it's popular. That works out. Yeah, it works out really well. And you can see that in people's attitudes in survey data and in just anecdotal evidence. You know, when I go to Canada, people use the coins. It's like, well, these are these are the coins now. This is what a dollar and uh, this is what a dollar looks like. This is what two dollars look like. So we see evidence of that in the United States, where the the coins didn't circulate, the silver dollars didn't circulate uh, back in the nineteenth century, but but the bills could. And this was an especially uh, inconvenient coin, which didn't right. didn't help its case at all. Um, and that that was the key: is that if you, it doesn't matter whether it's bullion or not bullion. It what matters is the convenience. So if you have a coin that's small enough to, to circulate, but also key point being the Susan B. Anthony, it has to look enough 
different to be distinguished from, say, the quarter, the coin can be successful. The precondition is that the dollar or the, the paper has to be taken out of circulation first. And that was what was intended with the Susan B. Anthony. But actually, this makes me wonder. I am really interested in the Susan B. Anthony dollar. I've done a bunch of deep dives into it, the article that I mentioned. And I've accumulated quite a number. And I wonder if there's a, uh, an analogy. The, the Morgan dollar was made, not really used, not all that popular, sat around for a while, and now it's uh, an amazing collectible. And I wonder if the Susan B. Anthony dollar might have the same fate. I don't know. I don't have, I don't have a crystal ball and I just accumulate them because I enjoy them. But sometimes I wonder in, in the year 2100, will, will coin collectors go to a coin show and see cases and cases full of slabbed or whatever they have then Susan B. Anthony dollars and think, why didn't people appreciate them at the time? Uh, I don't know. I, I can't tell, but um, I do well, there, that might happen. There is a little bit of a movement towards that. Uh, there, there are people that have started collecting Susan B. Anthony's and talked about different varieties of them. So I suspect that that's going to be the end results by 2100. Okay. Uh, I will, I'll, I'll stash them away with a special note to my family tree to, <laughs> to hold on to these. Well, we can always hope for a medical advances. Maybe we'll still be around, but <laughs> that, that would, that would be for the best. That would, yeah, that'd be the best, the best outcome all around. So we had, then 1886, you had silver certificates starting to proliferate, giving a monetary role to, or more of a monetary role to silver dollars. Then a few years later in 1890, things took another turn because the original Bland-Allison Act had between $2 million and $4 million of silver bullion purchased every month by the United States Mint. In 1890 came the passage of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, which did two things the second of which I think was more important than the first. The first was that it increased government silver purchases so that there were going to be 4.5 million ounces uh, purchased per month. So that was uh, an increase over what there was before. And it was, this was the amount that was required. But then what it also did was it changed the way in which this bullion was going to be paid for. So with the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1890, the bullion that was being purchased was being paid for with banknotes that could be redeemed in either silver or gold. And previously that was not the case. Uh, as you said, the silver certificates were used and, and they were only redeemable in silver. But now you had this connection where it wasn't just silver buying silver or silver certificates buying silver bullion. Now it was these notes that were also redeemable in gold in addition to silver that were being used to purchase the silver bullion. And this was, this was a loose end that pretty soon thereafter would come back to become a major problem. I've always been amazed when I, when I first read about this, I was just dumbfounded. I mean, the, the, the sheer in retrospect stupidity of the idea that, you're buying silver at inflated prices because it's domestic silver that's being artificially held up in price because the, the mint is forced literally to purchase this silver to create dollars that nobody wants to use. And, and that was one of the, the aspects of this. this. This whole system was based on the silver purchased was required to be produced into dollars not into the 50 cent or our minor 
change, which everybody needed, yeah. and which was in shortage, actually. So the mint would buy the silver to use for the minor coinage from foreign sources because it was cheaper. Meanwhile, they were forced to mint dollars at an inflated price, and then they were buying it with these notes. By adding the extra element that this silver notes could be turned in for gold, all of a sudden they created a huge drain on the treasury yeah. because the, the mine owners very quickly picked up the idea that all these silver notes that they were getting could be redeemed for gold and gold was relatively more valuable than silver on the foreign market. They turned those notes in as soon as they could. They got, they got them for the silver they shipped to the mint and then they turned those notes over to the federal government as quickly as possible to get gold making a double profit. And that, that's right. That's how the whole thing got started in the first place, because silver was being overvalued by the United States Mint compared to gold. It was like there was a two-tiered market. There was the regular market, the commercial market that was worldwide. And then there was what the Mint had to do and was required to purchase uh, from domestic silver. And that was very different, both in terms of its price and then what you could do with the notes and it ended up that they could be redeemed in gold. And it was, even though there was, strictly speaking, it was an option that the notes could be redeemed in silver or in gold. In practice, they had to be redeemed in gold because if the treasury stopped doing that, people would wonder, are they, you know, what's wrong with the treasury that they can't redeem these notes in gold? You know, it's like if I'm, if I give my daughter her allowance and usually I give her money, but uh, one week, I, I give her, you know, grass seeds or something. Like she's going to wonder, like, why, why are you changing what you're doing? It, it would be something that would be really, really strange. So there was this two-tiered system with respect to silver and also kind of a backdoor way of accomplishing much of the goal of free coinage of silver, which was letting silver and gold be kind of interchangeable from a government perspective, when from a market perspective, they, they really weren't. And the consequence was pretty similar to what would have been the consequence of free coinage of silver, which was silver came in and gold went out. And so the treasury's gold supply was dwindling to a, a pretty dramatic degree. And this was the next element of the timeline. There was a, the financial panic of 1893 caused by the issuance of these notes that ended up draining the treasury's gold supply. So it, in 1893, folks finally realized that this had gone too far. And so the Sherman Silver Purchase Act was repealed, uh, which brought an end to the silver purchases that had been going on since 1878. But it really, it was a, a major financial problem originating in those darn silver dollars and the way they were being paid for. Yeah. And it's, it's breathtaking when you, when you read some of the, uh, politics behind it you had people like uh the most famous of them was richard bland who became known as silver dick bland because for decades he supported silver so strongly regardless of anything going on yeah. he was not interested in, in the fact that there was a panic he he fought against the repeal of the sherman act right to the the bitter end in spite of the fact that there was a major depression. This panic created a major depression in the, in the U.S. And in part, it's because 
the gold was being drained out, not simply by the effects of the, the Sherman Act. One of the things you have to put it in context is that the world by and large was on a gold standard. So for the US government and for the US in general, in trade, we had to use gold to purchase imports, yeah. which was a, another drain on the treasury. Because of the Sherman Act, what this meant was gold was going to the silver interests to such an extent that we were having trouble making payments for imports that were necessary. And this is really the foundation of that panic. And it, it affected the economy across the board. Hundreds of banks went out of business, which meant that all the deposits and everything else, this is back before we had a uh, federal de deposit insurance corporation. So people and businesses lost all of their savings and it was a major deal. And yet the silver interests were still determined that they were going to get theirs regardless of what it did to the rest of the country. Yeah. And that really shows. And there, the, in the era of the gold standard, there was a, a finite amount of gold. So if it, if it was going in one direction, it was not available uh, anywhere else. And, uh, and you mentioned bland. I, I've seen reference in the 19th century, people referred to Morgan dollars. They were, they were referred to as bland dollars. I don't know how widespread this was, and that's it, it would be, I guess, kind of an ironic name for such an interesting series to be referred to as bland. Um, but the name Morgan Dollar has caught on. But I, I, I can see a lot of virtue in the in calling them bland dollars. It really reflects their origins, and like you said, it was silver dollar coinage, regardless of the consequences. Uh, but that view didn't prevail and the, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act was repealed in 1893 and uh, that put an end to the silver purchases. Uh, it took a while for the bullion to run out. So under the Bland-Allison Act, the silver was purchased and then it had to be coined pretty much right away. Um, under the Sherman Act, it had to be purchased, but there was not the same kind of urgency to coin it right away. So the silver purchases ended in 1893, uh, but then the silver just stuck around until finally it ran out in 1904. That was the last of the Morgan dollar coinage. So there was no new silver being purchased, but still just using up what had been uh, purchased before. And of course, there was no hurry to do it because nobody really wanted these coins. But uh, eventually, they they fulfilled the mandate of uh, of coining all the silver that had been purchased. But Along the way, then there was another really interesting episode, which was the election of 1896 and the campaign of William Jennings Bryan, who basically campaigned on a platform of free silver. His cross of gold speech was making this point that uh, gold and the gold standard was considered to be damaging to a lot of interests, basically anyone who owed money, uh, so a lot of farmers. Um, and gold was considered to be uh, something that was harmful to those interests. So Brian campaigned on this platform, resuming free coinage of silver at 16 to one, which would have basically caused silver to occupy the entirety of the United States coinage system almost and, and displaced gold and increased the money supply. So very, very consequential. Brian 
uh, was defeated in the 1896 election. He ran again on the same platform in 1900, was defeated again. But the Free Silver Movement had this, this revival uh, at the time after the ending of, of silver bullion purchases that was really profound to think about what might have been, although ended up not happening. Yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things where in the West, it's uh, remembered by issues of things like the lesser dollars, which are famous in Colorado. The idea that you could have a private individual who owned silver mines produce their own token coinage and value them at higher than the, the actual value of the silver, but support it by being willing to purchase them back. Basically, he was trying to act like a government, you know, where the, what supports the value of coinage or money in, in general at the very base level is that they're willing to take that money back in payment for taxes and services. Yeah, it has value for everyone. Right. And, 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 and there's ultimately a source that will redeem it for you. At so full value. you know you can take it from right. someone else and not worry about losing something. And so that, that was the attempt that, that Lesher tried, and he actually made it work. He was w- willing to put his money where his mouth was, but his, he was, uh, one way of putting it kindly, was he was a visionary. His, his idea that silver should be valued at $1.63 per ounce uh, wasn't realized until 1963, I believe. <laughs> but, and he was issuing his pieces in, 18, in the 1890s. So. It's hard, hard, to be, uh, hard to be ahead of the curve on that. It, it probably won't last all that long. So, yeah, the lesser dollars are really cool. And another, another sideline of the silver dollar story is Brian money, which was uh, satirical issues uh, made in association with the 1896 presidential campaign. They took a lot of forms, but the, the, the most uh, iconic form of Brian money, uh, not really money, but that's part of the point, is that it was uh, being used sarcastically. It would be a disc of silver, like maybe three inches in diameter, and it would, there would be an inscription, something to the effect of, like, this is a dollar's worth of silver, and then there would be a little circle taking up like half the diameter saying, this is a government silver dollar, that's worth only whatever 40 some cents uh, in terms of its bullion value. So making the distinction between what silver was worth and then what was being done with it in terms of coinage. So um, done in a satirical way, but there's, there's dozens of these issues of, of Brian money and they're uh, just an interesting sideline to the silver dollar coinage. Yeah, it's a, it's a great collectible and the stories behind it are, are really interesting. Actually, uh, uh, the museum column coming up in a month is covering the Brian Dollar. Yeah, so some uh, foreshadowing there for what you'll see in the numismatist. Um, yeah, and, and Brian money is cool in part because it's you know it's really large, and that will always get someone's attention. Then it's serving this interesting purpose. One last thing about Brian before we move on: a lot of people, myself included, believe that there uh, there is an allegory of the free silver movement and William Jennings Bryan, that this is presented in literary form in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, this was something that, this was published 50 or 60 years ago by an English professor named Henry Littlefield. And a lot of people have, have taken on the idea. And it's, when you delve into it, you can really see all the connections. The main one being this, 
we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about the Wizard of Oz, but the main connection is is this, which is that if you think about the the journey that Dorothy and her friends took, well, in the movie she's wearing red slippers. It was color film, and you could really see the red shoes in, in a really cool way on the screen. But in the book, she was wearing silver slippers. So the fundamental plot of the book is they have to travel this yellow brick road, so like a, a, a road made of gold, and all kinds of bad stuff happens to them as a result of following the path of gold, when all along, all she had to do was click her silver heels together and she could get back home. So um, a subtle message, but I think if you're, if you're looking for it, and at the time it would have been more evident, gold considered dangerous, silver was considered something that would be really helpful. Again, this was one particular perspective on the issue of the time, but I always find it really neat that there's a, a connection in literature. And it's not L. Frank Baum, like he didn't leave a note saying, I wrote The Wizard of Oz as an allegory of the free silver movement. So you don't have direct evidence, but the inferences are certainly there. And I think it's a, it's a really cool story to think about from that perspective. Absolutely. It's, it, it is neat to see how these issues of money would, would, uh, circulate and percolate into the rest of the society and culture in certain ways. And that's one of the ones that's uh, much more uh, plausible than many. So seems like maybe around 1900, we're kind of done with silver, but no, silver, the silver issue keeps coming up and it comes up in various ways. So the next milestone in silver dollar history was in 1918 with the Pittman Act. The Pittman Act was intended to help out Great Britain by uh, giving Great Britain access to silver, which they could then use largely in India. But Britain had this, this pretty intense need for silver that they were having difficulty uh, acquiring any other way. So the Pittman Act then required the melting of silver dollars, it, it was pretty convoluted. Silver dollars would be melted. And remember, silver dollars were not really circulating. They were sitting around in the treasury. So silver dollars would be, would be melted. The bullion would be sold to Great Britain. And then afterwards, the amount of bullion and however many silver dollars had been melted, that amount of bullion would be repurchased by the United States government and then coined into silver dollars to replace the ones that had been melted. So ended up kind of where we started in terms of silver dollars, but with a lot of melting along the way and also a lot of additional silver purchasing, which was good for the silver mining interests. Well, one of the things that's really interesting about this is the background to the whole story where uh, basically World War I was going on. Britain had been purchasing uh, supplies, munitions from the U.S. since the start of the war. Uh, in 1917, we entered the war, and as an ally of Britain, uh, we were interested in making sure that they were able to continue fighting. Britain's expenses uh, had gotten to such a level, largely to us, uh, that you know, during the war, Great Britain went from being the world's banker, the holder of the, of the largest monetary reserves in the world, in particular gold, to being a, a net debtor. And most of the debt was actually to the US. They essentially transferred 
their uh, monetary reserves, their monetary strength to the United States. So we were in a situation where Britain needed support. They were running out of money, out of credit. And the easiest way to do that would be to take this vast reserve of silver that we had sitting around with nobody using it uh, and finding a way to transfer that to England. And we did it as a way of reinforcing their monetary system. It turns out that India, which was part of uh, the British Empire at the time, uh, preferred silver. They didn't use gold very much. And Britain's trade deficit with India uh, was increasing. So by getting silver from the United States, they were able to fix the problem of the Indian monetary shortage without increasing their credit problems. It helped the U.S. Uh, with the silver interest and with getting rid of this surplus. Um, so it worked out very well uh, and helped successfully uh, win the war. And the result was this extra silver be was coined into a new coinage, which we're going to talk about next. Yeah, so the Pippin Act required melting of silver dollars and the, I'll tell you the exact number was 270,232,722 silver dollars were melted for this purpose. And then the intent was for them to be replaced. So 1918, the Pittman Act was passed and then it, it took a while to melt these silver dollars. And then in 1921, it was then time to resume silver dollar coinage. Again, not because anyone really needed the coins for circulation, but there was uh, a, a strong interest. Uh, by the Treasury in having silver dollar coinage resuming because they wanted to issue more silver certificates and, the, and they needed silver dollars to back them up. So the silver then had to be recoined uh, or purchased and then recoined into silver dollars. So this started in 1921. In 1904, you had the last coinage from the original bullion purchases. Those were Morgan dollars. 1921, it comes around again that it's time for silver dollars to be coined, there's no new design in place. So they need to bring back the Morgan dollar. The, the peace dollar design was waiting in the wings, but it wasn't ready. It would be coined in 1921, but only at the very end of the year. So they brought back the Morgan dollar, but it had been so long that all the old materials were gone that they used to use to make dye. So Morgan basically had to do a do-over of his original design. And if you look, you can see, if you look at a 1921 Morgan dollar versus an earlier Morgan dollar, I mean, they're obviously the same coin, but there are just some, some subtle differences in, in the way they're made. So the, the Morgan dollar coinage was revived when silver dollar coinage resumed. Then peace dollars started very limited in 1921 and continued for the next uh, seven years until in 1928, the repurchased bullion then ran out. So I said earlier, there were 270,232,722 silver dollars melted by the Pittman Act. Well, if you look at the mintage figures, if you add up the mintage figures for all silver dollars from 1921 uh, until they ended, at least temporarily in 1928, if you add up all those mintages, it's the exact same number, 270,232,722 silver dollars were recoined from 
those that had been melted in order to replace the ones that were melted due to the Pitman Act. So again, not really needed as coins for circulation, needed as backing for silver certificates and legally required by the Pitman Act. So that was the transition from Morgan to Peace Dollar with this revival of Morgans in 1921 for this purpose. Are you, are you saying that there's not really a shortage of Morgan dollars because of all the Morgan dollars that have been melted down over the years? <laughs> well, it, it was uh, about half of the Morgan dollars that, so if you look at the Morgan dollars from 1878 to 1904, and then the ones that were, that were melted in 1918, about half of the original mintage was melted, which means that the, uh, normally there's at least a good correlation between mintage and rarity and price, it's never perfect, or never even really that close to perfect. But for Morgan dollars, it's even more distinctive because you had things being melted in unpredictable amounts, unpredictable issues. You had some things being saved in unpredictable ways, like Carson City silver dollars ended up being saved through the 1960s, and so they're pretty plentiful, whereas other coins with, with higher mintages are much scarcer. So the Pittman Act was among the factors that meant that Morgan dollars, when you look at mintages versus the reality of the marketplace, it's not not quite there. So they're not rare, but they're rarer than they were, so in a relative sense. And they introduced a bit of unpredictability into that relationship. Yeah, so there still are something like 300 million Morgan dollars out there. Yeah, because they made a lot in, in 1921. Well, let's see. I'll just look right here live during the podcast. We'll look at the Red Book right here uh, to see. In, in 1921 uh, alone, there were about 85 million Morgan dollars made. So uh, that means a, a huge fraction of the Morgan dollars that exist are 1921s. You, you would see a relatively steady issue over the original period, 1878 to 1904, and then a huge spike in 1921. And that's why uh, I don't study this, but I think there's like dozens of different dye varieties of 1921D because they were made they were made in such such vast quantities. Yeah, such a profusion were made. But from the collector's standpoint, it means is there's there's plenty of them in general, but there are some great rarities, and there's still a lot of uh, research going on to discover the different varieties and rarities that exist that are unrelated to any of the written records. Yeah, like a coin that was made in such vast quantity and also to some degree rather indifferently. You know, I think like places like New Orleans uh, and Philadelphia, like a lot of ways they were just going through the motions. They just had to make these coins because they were required to do so. So things would happen to the dyes and, you know, ended up not being fixed or just kind of let it go. And so that so you end up seeing all these dye varieties because there were so many coins made for such a long time. Um, various things could happen. And so, again, the there's an irony in the sense that the unpopularity of the Morgan dollar at, at the time is a big part of what leads to its popularity now and the ways in which people can explore it, and which a lot of people do. Absolutely. It's one of the most commonly uh, inquired about coins at the at the uh, dealer shops and at the ANA as well. So then there was one revival and one almost revival of silver dollar coinage. In 1934, there was another Silver Purchase Act. I mean, you keep telling the story, like the story of the 1870s through the 1930s is like silver purchase after silver purchase. It's just so intrinsic to the history of what was happening in the times. 
another Silver Purchase Act in 1934. Um, so 1928, the Pittman bullion ran out. There were no dollars coined for five years after that. 1934, silver dollar coinage uh, revives along with silver purchases. But there was a difference in this Silver Purchase Act because this Silver Purchase Act did not require the bullion to be made into coins. It just simply needed to be purchased. And this also meant that there was a, a subtle change in the silver certificates because if you look at an older silver certificate from before 1934, it says there is deposited in the United States Treasury one silver dollar. So this one silver certificate was a, a certificate, basically a receipt for one silver dollar. After or 1934 and after, the wording is there is one dollar in silver. So it's not necessarily a coin silver dollar. It could just be bullion. Uh, and then when silver certificates were redeemed, at first they were redeemed in silver dollars, but eventually that, that ran out. So then later they were redeemed in bullion. So that there was a little flicker of silver dollar coinage in 1934, 1935 with peace dollars. Then bullion purchases continued and silver certificates were, like that was basically the only kind of dollar bill. I mean, $1 denomination in the United States for all those decades. Uh, so silver purchases continued, but silver dollar coinage ended. There was there is one last bit of ending to the story, which I'll save for just a minute. But that that last uh, brief revival, 1934-1935, was the end of peace dollar coinage, and so really the end of an era for the silver dollar. It's interesting that it happens at, right at that time because it coincides with the demonetization of gold in the U.S. because of the. Uh, uh, the Great Depression and the results of that where gold was being drained out of the country because we were one of the few countries to come out of World War I still issuing gold coins. Most yeah. countries were still on the gold standard, but they were unable to issue gold coinage for a period after the, the uh, end of World War I because of the economic damage done to them. But the U.S. came out of the war in a much better financial position. And so we were able to continue coinage. The Great Depression changed all that. And because we were producing gold coins and those were being used in international trade, uh, it became a problem because we were draining our gold reserves mm -hmm. through our coinage to countries that didn't have enough gold. So in 1934, we, we stopped that. And we, in 1933, we actually stopped issuing gold coins, which is the the origin of the, the famous 1933 $20 double eagle and the also very rare 1933 eagle coinage, which were produced, but then the, the vast majority of them were actually melted down in 1934. Yeah, right. So much, so much melting. The, there was so much effort put into making coins that people didn't want in the form of silver dollars, then later melting things like gold. So that's part of what makes it so interesting. Um, and then, so gold ended, and then that was the last bit of silver dollar coinage in the 1930s. It's silver certificates and silver purchases. Then in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, things started moving again in the silver dollar experience. So a, a couple of things happened, and they were not necessarily connected with one another, but they were happening at the same time. Um, Silver prices started increasing. People were using more silver, like photography, um, at least when it was a physical medium, you needed silver for photographic film. 
and other industrial purposes. So silver prices were rising, which meant that the writing was on the wall that silver coinage was going to be on the way out in the United States as it already had, as had already happened in other countries. Um, you also started seeing people paying more attention to the bags of silver dollars that had been sitting around for decades in the treasury. You know, there were still many millions of them left by the 1960s, but then people started discovering some pretty rare dates. Like there was the 1903 O, which was a very rare silver dollar. No one knew what came of them. They might've been melted. They might've been in bags. And all of a sudden they were released in bag quantity. So it, it became kind of a frenzy. People were collecting that way. At the time, people were collecting rolls. So a lot of people were getting bags of, of Morgan dollars looking for rare dates. The Morgan dollar and peace dollar uh, segments of the hobby were really pretty, pretty dull, pretty dormant. Really not a lot of people were collecting them. Uh, certainly nowhere near today, but there were still enough rarities that it was worth hunting for. So all these silver dollars started um, being purchased. I mean, you could go, if you wanted to buy a silver dollar, you'd just pay a dollar for it. It was like going to the bank today and getting an Anthony dollar or a Sacagawea dollar or a presidential dollar. So there was the release of all these silver dollars that really fueled the growth of the overall numismatic hobby and, and Morgan dollars in particular. And then on a different track, and it ended up not happening, but it's really interesting to contemplate. There was serious thought being given to reviving the coinage of silver dollars in the 1960s, even though silver coinage, dimes, quarters, and half dollars, that was on the way out. It got to the point where peace dollars, the mint actually made about 300,000 peace dollars as a prelude to making millions more to be issued. That project was eventually canceled. People realized doesn't make sense to make all these silver dollars at a time of a silver shortage when we are um, eliminating silver from lower denominations. Why start silver dollar coinage? It would have been mostly for, again, silver mining and casinos was a big, uh, a big interest um, where people wanted silver dollars, but that ended up not happening. So the peace dollars, 1964D, some were made on, on a trial basis, but none were issued. And even in recent years, this was an amazing discovery. Uh, there were materials produced for a potential 1964 revival of the Morgan dollar. Uh, no one has seen any uh, examples of the coins being made, but there were hubs and dies and things like that that were, were discovered. So it's amazing to think that a coin that was first issued in 1878 that no one ever really wanted was then considered for revival even as late as 1964. So those two things, the, the treasury release of the vast majority of silver dollars um, that remained. A few Carson cities were still in the vault. They would be sold later. That's That spread these coins out into the hobby and really helped ignite the collecting boom uh, in general and of, of these coins. And then over on the sideline, just this potential revival of silver dollar coinage in a way that would not have been anticipated. So the Morgan dollar and peace dollar story continued as a collectible, but the late 1960s, that was really the end of the story as a political and economic uh, object and, and its historical connection to those factors. Right, and it, it's part of what makes uh, numismatics interesting. There's all these different stories and sidelines. And I, I've always found it particularly interesting that really the, this boom, this re revival of interest in the dollars changed uh, how, we, how the hobby is practiced today because this was, an, uh, a major part of the interesting grading that occurred around the same time, partly 
driven by dealers, but also collectors, because all of a sudden people were very interested in large numbers in these coins that were available. And most of them, very unusually for circulating coinage, were in nearly perfect shape. Yeah. So you had hundreds of millions of coins that in traditional grading would have been in uncirculated or about uncirculated condition. And how do you differentiate them? And so part of that result was the, the taking of a standard that was originally created for uh, large cents and expanding it to cover Morgan dollars and all coinage with the mint state category divided into 10 numbers, which is now routinely uh, used on a regular basis. So you, what used to be a category that would have been generalized as fluidic coin, if you're using a European system or uh, mint state is now uh, covered by a numerical 10 point system. The coin had such a huge impact in terms of what people collect. Uh, I think of the the silver dollar releases as an example of supply creating demand. When, like you said, all these hundreds of millions of coins were now out there, a pretty cool collectible, and so that's what people did. And then also influencing how people collect with grading, and then also uh, strong interest in die varieties. People had been interested in die varieties previously for other series, but uh, Morgan dollar die varieties are a, a huge element of collecting um, and inspired by the fact that the coins are out there to collect and, and they reward that sort of intense study that's involved in, in the examination of die varieties. Yeah, and to the extent that there's even books that focus specifically on die varieties for Morgan dollars and they've influenced the collective Morgan dollars ever since. That's In particular, I'm thinking about the VAM book which is the Bible for anybody that collects Morgan dollars. Uh, that's where you go to find out just about everything. And they set the standard for what is collectible and not within the Morgan series. And I, I've, I've never counted the number of varieties in that book, but what's always been meaningful to me is that a lot of people collect with a focus on the top 100 VAM varieties for Morgans or the top 50 VAM varieties for peace dollars. So to me, there's always, there's always an inference. Well, if you can have a list and like have a meaningful top 100, it, that's a pretty long list if, if you can identify the top 100. And, uh, and many varieties are listed in the Red Book that are popularly collected. Um, you know, not, not nearly that many, but it's become definitely more popular um, over time and, and uh, included. There's a lot more information both in the Red Book and then there are websites devoted to uh, to dye varieties, but with such a such a sprawling series made for so long and and um, under such conditions, it's uh, it seems like a natural thing to do for people who are interested in looking at things that way, and and it it rewards that sort of study because there is so much to see. Yeah, it, it spawned a whole new element of research as people discover new varieties, new ways of collecting. So. Not only do you collect uh, Morgan dollars in the, in the standard traditional way of by date and mint, you can collect them by VAM varieties and all sorts of uh, different evolutions beyond that. 
So the, the silver dollar story is still evolving. It's not a current coin and there's no public policy matters related to it. But in terms of how the, the hobby interacts with these coins, uh, it's something that has been changing and, and is still changing. So the timeline of silver dollar history in terms of its production, that, that timeline ended a long time ago, but it's definitely still with us and still a, a really vital part of the hobby. I feel like when I think about coins that a beginning collector should have or that, that any collector should have, I feel like there's a few coins that are just so historical and so compelling that, you know, kind of every, every collector, I would say, should have one of, the, one of these in their collection. Like 1943 Steel Cent is one example, but Morgan Dollar and a Peace Dollar. I feel like those are, uh, even if you only have one of each, they're so cool and there's so much history attached to them. I, I would recommend that anyone pursue it, you know, get, get at least one. And if you, know, you want to collect beyond that, then there's a lot of rich opportunities out there. But to represent it somehow, because there's, there's so much going on, it's been so important in history and in the hobby. Yeah, and, and the, uh, what they represented, the peace dollar, especially, we didn't really talk about much with that, but as a, as a closing, the, the idea that uh, the peace dollar was, was issued to commemorate the end of World War I, uh, you know, a, yeah. a vast tragedy that, that occurred that uh, changed civilization as we knew it at that time, and the peace dollar, at least in the United States, was a form of recognition of the the cost and a, and a form of closure. We've got peace, and it was a promise to the future that they were hoping to be able to maintain peace. You know, peace in our time, and they created a world that was safe for democracy. Unfortunately, as we all know, that that wasn't the case eventually. But that was the hope of the of the time, and that was what motivated the creation of the that peace dollar. That's a, definitely a great example of the, the symbolism that's part of numismatics and, and especially thinking about it from the perspective of the time. We're looking at the peace dollar now. It's, it'll be 100 years old next year. But what did it mean to people at the time it was issued in 1921? And it was such an important concept and such a, a compelling thought that they included the word peace on the coin itself. If you look there on the reverse at the bottom, it's, it's inscribed uh, peace. So it's uh, something that is really strongly symbolic of what people were thinking and hoping at the time. Well, I think this is a, a good time to wrap up. We've had a great conversation. Uh, hopefully everybody out there will enjoy this conversation. I've certainly enjoyed it. What do you think, Mitch? Yes, me too. It's always, uh, always good to talk silver dollars because there's, there's so much to talk about and, and so much history. And it's the kind of thing that you can talk about the history and then a collector can, can go and see one and in their collection or, or go acquire one or more uh, with, with relative ease uh, if they're interested in doing so. So really, really a great collectible and I'm glad we talked about it today. That's it for this edition of 2Bits Coins and Currency. Thank you for listening and remember to go to money.org slash podcast to find out more about this podcast and the American Numismatic Association.